0: Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at um, Galatians chapter 4 in a little bit. But first, um, I wanted to kind of just have like a a small introduction. And I was reminded, like, today is the Lord's Day, above all things, and it happens to fall on the 25th of December as well. Um, This hasn't happened since 2016, and because of leap year, there's a rotation that happens, and we won't see this again until... Uh, 2033, I believe. Um, and this morning, there are roughly 2 billion people in the world that will celebrate Christmas in some sense. Um, and I, we're cresting 8 billion people in the world now today. So we're looking at a quarter of the world's population will be celebrating this day in some capacity. Um, and even within a church our size, within the seats that are sitting here, um, I'm sure there are a, a wide range of traditions that we could all probably share or talk about, uh, and when it comes to Christmas. Um, but I want to look at three p- introductory points: is we see the traditions of Christmas, we also see the brokenness of Christmas, and then we also see the truce of Christmas. Some of those we already talked about a little bit this morning in our in our prayer and in our reading of our our scripture. Uh, but there is these three things and not just encompass just that, but there's more, but by looking at these three, we, we see these traditions of Christmas and they range from decorations, Christmas trees, uh, putting up lights, cookies, uh, food. I, I love the traditions of good food and different food that are shared, uh, family gatherings, um, and exchanging of gifts. Obviously there's a lot of people to like to exchange gifts, um, And I know for us, one of the traditions that we had uh, growing up with our our children, our girls, is we would get them new pajamas every Christmas, and we would set up a scavenger hunt in our home, and they would have to find them, uh, and they'd have to wear them that evening. Uh, So that was always something fun that we did that we enjoyed doing as a tradition. Um, And then there's also the other side of the coin where there's some people who, you know, really don't choose to uh, embrace some of the traditions, and that's okay as well. Um, They don't choose to do a lot of the other things that uh, the, the rest of the, we see people doing. And there's where there's a gift, of liberty of conscience. So God's given us this liberty to celebrate as we see or don't see fit, and that's a good thing. Um, and I want to note that the traditions and exercising in them themselves is not a sin, but if they become an idol in our lives and it becomes something that we attach our hearts to above God, that the practices – of these traditions, override the person of who we really need to be looking to, then that's a problem. And there's where we need to look at our own hearts and say, am I exercising something properly? And we don't need to go into sides and right or wrong, um, because actually, as I was thinking about that, First Timothy tells us that God provides us richly, uh, to enjoy the things he's given to us. So, in a sense, even at Christmas time, it's a great opportunity to give back to others and do it in a generous way. So, as God directs you and leads you, know that it all comes from him and it's a great way to encourage other people as well. Uh, and then on top of that, it gives us the opportunity to proclaim the gospel to people that really need it. Um, on the other side of that, these traditions can also cause a lot of stress. I don't know about you, but I know when we were first married, trying to get around, visit all family, and get it could be stressful. You feel exhausted because really by the end of the day, you're trying to please man and not disappoint people, and that's not God's intent for our lives, not just at Christmas, but any time of the year. That's not the place that God wants us to be. So we have to watch for those dangers that can come in traditions as well. Um, I don't say this to, like, put us in camp because that's not what this is about. Um, historically, and if we wanted to have the argument, historically, the first uh, account that we find of a Christmas celebration is 30, 336 A.D., and it was in Rome, and we didn't really see the general practice of Christmas celebrations until the ninth century. So traditions have just come about over the centuries and over the years. Um, but I was reminded, just kind of how God reminded me of this, that even over the, the years, the traditions of men have not hindered the purposes and the sovereignty of God. He will still accomplish everything he chooses and has purpose to do. So we can have faith and assurance in that today. In fact, in Christ, more than 300 prophecies were fulfilled by his birth and his life and his resurrection. And that is the news that should unite us, not the traditions which can separate, but the uniting the fact that Christ came And fulfilled, even as Shane shared this morning, fulfilled so many prophecies about who he was. So there we see the traditions that can come out. But there's another piece that we see, the brokenness of Christmas. And, I mean, this time of year in our culture in the world, um, we see the heart and the habits of people without hope on full display. I mean, it's so evident. Um, They don't have a true peace, and there isn't a true hope in people. Um, and we do see people who have made the practices and these traditions almost into an idol. That's what they, they strive to do, and they try to find comfort in it. Um, I just list off a few things. We see overspending. We see overindulgence. We see overcommitments. We see, I think, uh, our brother mentioned this morning, we see commercialization and marketing enticing people to buy things you don't need and are not going to impact and change your life. And they do all these things year after year after year with no reality that it doesn't change. And it still leaves me empty when the day's over. And they're faced with the same reality again. And for many of them, they do it all under the umbrella in the name of Christ. When really, they're totally broken and totally blind to the way that they're living. And that's our world. We see it outside the hope of Christ. This is what the result is. I also was amazed by this. For those who deal with depression, there's a 64% increase of their conditions during this time of year. And we see a rise in binge drinking as well. There's alcohol consumption at family gatherings and work parties. And all these things happen around this kind of time of year. And what it does is it leaves people with tons of regret. And they go on and say, my life hasn't changed. In fact, I feel worse. So attached to Christmas here is a, a brokenness that is attached to this remembrance and this celebration. And then thirdly, there is the truth of Christmas. And God has spoken through his word to reveal so many wonderful excellencies and truths in the narrative of the coming of Christ. The incarnation is amazing. I mean, we just sit back and think about it. Um, I stand in amazement sometimes when you read over that, even as Shane read that this morning. Those things are really, they're miraculous. We can't explain them. I just wrote down a few things as we read in, in Luke 2, 1 through 21. Uh, we see these amazing events and, and know for us, by God's spirit, he's given us faith. And through faith, we see this and we can understand the truths in God's word. Those who are outside of the faith of God and God has not revealed that to them, they don't see these as truth and facts. They see them as fiction. And it's like, well, these things may have happened or they may not have happened. So it's God's Spirit showing us and giving us faith that we embrace and know this to be truth. And just look at a few of them. You have Zachariah's visitation by the angel and Elizabeth's conception, which brought forth the birth of John the Baptist in Luke 1. Joseph was visited by the angel of the Lord in Matthew 1.8, which confirmed him to take Mary as your wife, not to be afraid. And we saw this visitation happen in a dream to him. There's the Roman government ordered census which caused Joseph and Mary that they had to travel to Bethlehem to fulfill that the coming Messiah would be born. This was a fulfillment in Micah 5 that showed that the Messiah would come through Bethlehem. So we see God working in those events. Then we have the miraculous birth of Christ. The virgin gives birth. And I still, to this day, probably to the day I die, I will never be able to wrap my mind around that reality that God over-encompassed Mary. She became pregnant and birthed the Son of God. So there's a miraculous thing that took place that God burst forth into our world through a woman, through the birth of, uh, of her. We see an angelical visitation, a proclamation, the are in the field, and all of a sudden these angels that are proclaiming that this one has been born. I don't know about you, I'm not a shepherd, but I, I think if that would have happened, I'd probably have been like, okay, I should really say, and it drove them to go and find him. So we see this breaking forth of, of God's heaven into the earth's atmosphere. There was a heavenly host of worship on earth, we see in Luke 2, and a multitude of angels. We don't know the exact number, but a multitude. It was more than one or two, so there's an angelical host of worship happening, and this was going on in our world. There's a celestial event in Matthew 2.9 where a star appears in the sky, which drove and guided the Magi to where Christ was at. And so that was another miraculous thing that God did. And with all this and these things that we read, it is easy, and I can see how the world kind of gets to this place. They can just stay camped in Bethlehem. You can stay there and just look at the miracles and read the scripture and just kind of stay comfortable in all those accounts and the miracles. But that's really not the intent of Christmas. It's not the intent to just stay camped in Bethlehem with all those things that took place. God wants us to move from Bethlehem and one, see his mercy, and second, see his majesty. And that's what really encompasses Christmas. We see the mercy of God because all of a sudden we do not get what we truly deserve. As broken, sinful people, we don't deserve Christmas. We don't deserve the Incarnation. And then second of all, God wants to see His majesty, which is, is seen in perfect display through the glory of His Son. And that is on full display when we see it in Christ. Psalm 145 verse 12 says that we are to make known as to the sons of men your, majest, your mighty acts, I'm sorry, and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom." So for us, we go forth proclaiming the works that God has done to the world and we see his full display of his majesty and his kingdom through the Son of God. Hebrews 1, one of my favorite verses, verse 3, chapter 1, says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This baby that was born, and we talked about it, Just this morning I read about this stable where he was at. He is enthroned on high in a majestic place today. And that should make us tremble in a sense and make us wonder and give thanks and praise. So Christmas, though we decide to choose on the 25th of December, it's a proclamation of God's majesty and and it's a work of his redemption for his children. So let's look at a reason... Why we have so much to celebrate today so if you have your Bibles uh, we are going to turn to Galatians four now the letter of Galatians written by Paul um, and he wrote this letter to the church in Galatia uh, and he was a, ex, he was confronting extreme Jews that were teaching that salvation wasn't just in faith in Christ alone but there had to be works attached to it that they had to become Jewish to be able to be true Christians. So that means they had to get circumcised, uphold the law, all these things. And that is the way they became real believers. So he's combating this and writing this letter and saying, no, that is not true. Your salvation comes only because you have put trust, belief fully just in Christ alone. And they were teaching something opposite of that. So the question between Paul and these false teachers was, does obedience to the requirements of Judaism earn a man's acceptance? or I'm sorry, earn man's acceptance before God. And we know that's not true. So any of us that that knows how salvation works, that is not a reality. We also know that the believer who tries to earn this salvation actually nullifies the grace of Christ. And he says that in chapter 2 and in chapter 5. So we cannot add anything to the grace and the salvation of Jesus. And Paul was affirming to the Gentile believers there uh, that they don't need to be circumcised, they don't need to do all these extra practices. They are complete because of faith in Christ alone. So in chapter 4, he, he, he kind of turns us and starts to show us our identity. Our identity, who we were before Christ came, and now who our identity is after Christ has come. I want to actually start reading in chapter 3, uh, Verse 28. Paul finishes up um, explaining about the law and how it was given and why it was given, that it was there almost as a protection until Christ came, and it was there put in place to show us that we could never uphold the law. And it pointed to a greater thing, which was the coming of Christ. So we pick it up in actually verse 27. He's telling them, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Chapter 4, verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers Until the date set before the Father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So I want us to look at three points here that Paul brings out. First one is that we are identified as slaves. Second of all is that we are identified as adopted. And thirdly, he says that we are identified as heirs. So verses 1 through 3 We were slaves. How did we gain this identity? Well, we sit here this morning, and we know that God created the world perfectly in love. And he created man and women. He created Adam and Eve, the first people that were put into the garden. And we know that in Genesis 3.26, something disrupted that. We were created as image bearers of God. That was our first identity, to be the the image bearers of God alone. He says that we will create man in our own image, and he did that. But with the rebellion and the sin that came as the serpent came and Satan came and lied to Adam and Eve and said, no, you want to be like God. And what happened was they fell and sin entered into the world. And because of that, the course of all things changed. So our identity as being bearers of, image bearers of God, we now became slaves. And we, we took on a new identity, unfortunately. And God, over the years, consistently tried to reclaim our identity and show us who we really were. But we continued to choose our own power, our own selves, over the reality of, of trusting God and who he was. So the perfect plan, the perfect place identity that we had was not the condition that we were in before we came to know Christ. See, due to sin, we have been and still are prone to the influences of this world, to others, and to even ourselves. So there is still a remnant of the old man that we fight against, and those things still combat us. So we understand that once we were slaves, but now because of Christ, he has redeemed us. We'll look at that a little bit more, a little closer. We also understand that this identity of slaves, uh, and I mentioned this in Galatians 3.22, he says that, but the Scripture imprisoned every, everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ might be given to those who believe. So in a sense, we were also imprisoned in the sense of the law. The law, in a sense, it, it pr- imprisoned us because we could never meet the, the requirements of the law. So it kept us in a place where it had to make us force us to point the look to Christ. And see, the law was intended to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. The law could not bring right standing before God, and it proves our need for Christ because we never could meet all the requirements. It will never happened. So because of sin, we are still viewed as children spiritually without faith. So Paul goes on to say that we were still children and lacking that faith because it had not been poured out yet. And when the heir is still a child, he says that the heir really is no different from a slave. Everything still belongs to the father, and the heirs under the guardian and the managers, just as a slave is under restraint. So what was happening was, uh, the law was acting as a guardian over us because the appointed time that the father had allowed it hadn't come yet. So though we were heirs for those of us that God would call into His kingdom, we were not at that place yet. So that law was guarding; it was entrusted over us for a season, for years and years. The other thing that we looked is interesting in this. Is that under Roman custom the father would set the particular date for maturity? So Paul uses this illustration from the Roman society to show that in the same situation that we were spiritually not of age yet, that God had appointed and he would tell us when that time was, just like the Roman father would say, Hey, now is the time that came that my son is now mature. So we see this working of why we were enslaved, and there was a purpose in that as well. And verse 3 reminds us that the slavery we were under as children was also idolatrous and pagan because he says that you were uh, attached to the elementary principles of the world. And the world, even today, can still influence a lot. We really have to fight, uh, fight for, just we need to ask God to help us in that battle because we can easily be swayed down by the ways of the world. Um, And and, and the enemy is quick to come in and lie, just like he did to Adam and Eve, which put the first people in prison and enslaved them. And he goes on to talk about that a little bit more in verse 8 as well. So we see this first part that we see we're enslaved. There's a a thing happened because of sin entering into the world. The next thing that Paul brings out in verses 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Fullness of time. It's kind of a analogy I was trying to like wrap my head around this week. Um, and some people have said, you know, uh, this was the perfect time for Christ to come. But Philippians 2, verse 6-8 through says that when the fullness of time had came, God sent forth his Son. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he humbled himself and becoming obedient to the point of death, even death to a crawl on the cross. So the fullness of time meant that it was the exact moment for God to send Christ into the world for us. And at that time, the world had experienced a technological and a social revolution. Uh, it was made perfect for Jesus to come to earth. The world was united under the Roman rule and Roman peace. Roads that lined um, the Roman Empire made it easy for travel to people to get around. It was one common language in, in Greek, so that communication was much better than any before. Um, the world spoke uh, that common language, and it, it allowed people to communicate and to spread of the gospel that could go forth. Uh, and moreover, people were spiritually hungry. There was a desire Uh, for people to hear of of God and things that were going on. And that argument can be said, and there is a lot of truth that's possibly in that. Uh, But we need to keep in mind, what's he saying in verse 2? But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So God's perfect plan and his fullness of time has nothing to do with the culture. It could have been that this age was was more perfect than that age. We don't know. But God, in his perfect time, knew that this was the time for Christ to come. The new era of salvation history began with the arrival of Christ. Um, and he was setting that plan perfectly set before us. Um, it's incredible to think about how he chose to do that, um, And in regards to those things, he was also born of a woman. So we see that the fullness of time it came, and that verse says, born of a woman under the law to redeem us who were under the law. So when we look at that, what does it mean to be born under that? Christ was born under the law. Um, He was born, and he was the only one that was able to fulfill all the requirements of the law. Uh, God, to be in the presence of God and have a relationship with God, we need to be perfect. And none of us are perfect, and again, that law is showing that we could never meet it. So Christ came, fulfilled all the full requirements of the law, and in reality is, if he would have sinned and then died on the cross, his blood would have only shed the sins for himself. It would not have copied the sins for all those that would put trust in him. So he comes, fulfills the law perfectly for us who could never fulfill the law perfectly. And the standard of holiness is fulfilled by Scripture. God looks at it as a perfect sacrifice. Lastly, I like the fact that Jesus says in Matthew 5.17, because he says, I did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. There's many people who say, well, see, because Christ, there's no reason to worry about the Ten Commandments. There's no reason to try to live a life that God has set apart as being righteous, and that's not true because Christ came and said, I didn't come to abolish all that. I came to fully fulfill it. So for us this morning that are in him, he has fulfilled it, and we strive to walk in those same ways. So we thank God for the fact that he came and he fulfilled the law. We also see this word redeemed, uh, to redeem those who were under the law. Um, What's that word redeemed mean? Um, It's a freedom word. Um, He came to set people free out of a burdensome situation. Um, Back then, there would have been this idea of marketplace slavery. And if you would purchase a slave, you would free him out of the marketplace. So Christ came because he was freeing us out of the marketplace of sin. See, we were under it, we were condemned by it, and because we could never always keep the law in its entirety. We could never keep it in our hearts. So we were enslaved, and Christ came and redeemed us. He paid the ransom that we could never pay. I'm reminded that evil always looms within us. There's a a sense that until we're fully glorified in Christ, there's a remnant of our old man that always is going to loom. And we need to run to Christ and go to him as we look in our prayer meeting this morning. We need to learn Him, knowing that he's the one who's redeemed us and can help us battle when that evil looms and comes and speaks a lie that is not true. Galatians 3, in the prior chapter 13, says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So he not only abolished those things, he became the curse and the, the full sacrifice for that God looked at as being uh, complete. And since we have been redeemed from the law, it says that now we are adopted as sons. Um, And this is not a sexist statement, as some people would probably want to bring up and say, oh, it's just talking about sons. It's not talking about women. Um, But that's not the case, because if we look just before that, he says that there is neither any Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, or female. So because of all of us who are in Christ, he says that, and if you are in Christ and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So in those days, if, you, if I was an a owner of a, a large land and I had an heir to my, everything that I owned, and he was my son, my firstborn son would get everything that I had. And the truth would be is if I had daughters, they would get married to someone and then they would be part of a different family lineage. But the son, the first to, to the heir, would get everything. And what Paul is saying is that for us who are in Christ, we are looked at the same exact way. We are connected with son, who is the full heir. So everything that the father has, he gives to the son, and we are connected to him. So we see this adoption taking place that God says, I'm now adopting you as my son. And it's not this idea that we sometimes we think about, um, where it's like you adopt a baby or a little child, uh, we don't come into God's kingdom that way. John three thirteen says that we need to be born again. There's a re- there's a regeneration that takes place that we are born again, and that's how we become a part of God's family. But in Roman culture, adoption um, could happen as a full grown adult as well, um, even given the rights and the privileges of the son. So we see that, that this could take place. So God was showing that that is what was happening here. And this is what we have in Christ. He came, he received us as sons before the Father, and we had the same position as the Son. So because of Christ's coming, we went from slaves of unrighteousness to sons and daughters of righteousness, of God. Just a couple of beautiful passages that talk about adoption, Ephesians one five says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ according to the purpose of his will. Romans eight fifteen says, "For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." Second Corinthians six verse eighteen, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me," says the Lord Almighty. And from the Old Testament, Hosea 2, verse 23, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I would say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. So there's a great exchange that takes place. God adopts us. We become his sons and daughters. We are now his people. That is an incredible position compared to where we had been before Christ came. I also am reminded, when it talks about adoption, um, I'm an adoptive parent, obviously, and no matter what you do with an adoptive child, they'll never take on your full likeness, whether it's because of if you're the same race or not the same race, but there's a thing that you'll never, you're never going to look exactly like you because you're not biologically connected. But we who are adopted by God, we do conform into the same likeness of who he is, the likeness of Christ. He transforms us. So that's a more of a superior adoption than just a physical adoption today. So I just, that's something else for us to be encouraged by, that as, adoptive, as God adopts us, we become exactly like him. So then we move on to verse 6 and 7. He says that because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So what do you think about when you think of heirs? I I think we've seen a little bit of a change going on recently this year. Uh, with the queen passing away and there's going to be a new heir to the throne and these things happen. So, uh, you know, we we see uh, children of royalty as being heirs to the throne, right? Um, Being an heir means that you're probably going to receive something. Also means that you have rights to an inheritance. So as we see that word heir, these are the things that are attached to it. And we will be inheritors of those as well. Um, And, Verse 6 says that the Spirit of His Son comes. And what does it mean for the Spirit? It confirms in us who we are. We can say that we're sons and daughters of God, but it says that the Spirit of His Son comes into our hearts. And what is, that's a seal. It seals us to say that now we are God's sons and daughters. He even says that in uh, Ephesians. 1 verses uh, 13 and 14 this is Paul speaking again in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory so we see these Galatians that were being tossed and frozen and being lied to about, who they were in Christ. And we had just been learning this the last few weeks that at the time of conversion, the belief that we have and put our trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes at that point and makes residence in our lives. And he seals us. And he then gives us the idea that we can then cry out, Abba, Father. He puts a deep conviction that not only do we Feel it, but we know it as well in our souls and our minds that God is our Father, and the Holy Spirit confirms and does that work. what a different place that is. I'm just thinking, you know, before this understanding the story of Christmas and this narrative, if we were enslaved and broken and unrighteous people, now we can cry out and say, Daddy, Abba, Father, the one who loves me has adopted me as his son. Uh, What a transition, what a change of position that has happened for us. I also want to bring out that notice in verse 4, uh, verse 7, it says, chapter 4, verse 7, says that heirs through God. And if we look at this language in Romans 8, verse 16 and 17, it states that we are heirs of God. So we see that we're heirs through God and we're heirs of God. So there, there's a little bit of a different kind of, uh, a now or a different language there. In Galatians, in the, in the Galatians passage, the context is the promise of Abraham through God. That is, by sending his son to redeem us, we are heirs with Abraham of, the, of his inheritance, namely the world. So, Romans 4.13 says, For the promise to Abraham, his offspring, is that you would be heir of the world. And it did not come through the law. And again, we see this coming back and dovetailing all together. It's not by the law, but it's through the righteousness of faith. So again, we see that we, because of our faith in Christ alone, we are now connected to the promise that God had given Abraham, to the covenant that he gave him. But in Romans 8, verses 16 and 17, the context is that with Christ, the heirs of all that is, it's God, namely everything. And we read that in Romans 8. It says that the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him as well. So we get two contexts here. Abraham's fulfilled of the promises in Christ. We are fulfilled through that. The other promise is the fact that we're heirs with Christ of God and just think about this. Because of Christmas and the work of Christ and what he did, we inherit God himself. Not just all the things that are connected to him, but to him himself. And for some people, that might not seem like a very big inheritance. Uh, but for me, I think for us who are in Christ, uh, that's huge. That's huge we are heir of the richest inheritance we could possibly ever achieve. Just what Adam and Eve had before sin entered and broke them, we now will inherit that same reality before the brokenness of sin. And that's good news. And that's when we look at Christmas and we celebrate, that's what God has done through the incarnation of redeeming his people. So just a couple things to think about this morning. Um, I guess the first one would be as if some of them may be sitting here today, and you've never really gone past the scene of the manger. You look at and you, and you look at the story of Christ and, and His coming, and you never go beyond that. You never thought about, "Hey, I am a slave to unrighteous. I am broken, um, and I'm in need of a redeemer." Um, John three sixteen through eighteen, and it's a scripture we many of us know that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that all that would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And the piece that comes after that is that he did not send Christ into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. Because belief of not believing in Christ means that you're already condemned. You're already enslaved. There's nothing you're going to do. So Christ didn't. He came to save you, not to condemn you. So if you sit here this morning and you would say, I've never looked at that. I've never looked at Christ for salvation, for hope in Him. Uh, our encouragement would be is to look to Him. You cannot earn a better position before God because a better position doesn't really exist. There's no better position that we could ask for. And that's why Paul stressed the fact that for those of us who believe, you become a son, you become an heir, you become adopted. So this morning, that's, that's a huge reality for us, that it's beyond just that Christmas story, which is powerful and miraculous in itself, but it goes way bigger than that because it points to something greater. And my encouragement be for us who would be in the body of Christ today, this is a good reminder for us. It's an encouragement for us, an encouragement for me, by this beautiful progression that takes place. And I would help that it would help us even in our understanding of God and even in our evangelism and people that we know that we pray for that are lost. Um, Paul clearly shows what our identity was and what our identity now is. So first, we were set free from slavery, and we were given the gift of faith. And we see that the law was given. We didn't have the gift of faith yet. God comes, Christ comes, now the gift of faith has been given He opens our heart, opens our eyes to see, and to see the beauty and believe on Christ. So we go from slaves to those that are now adopted in his God's family. And then sons were made heirs, heirs of everything, heirs of God, heirs of all the promises of his. So as we, for me, as I come away from this, I think about that second category in the brokenness of Christmas. Um, There's a broken world out there that needs this hope. Um, There's broken people you know that you work with, that you are in family members with, that need this hope. And just when, at that time, when Christ birthed forth into the world and there was a hunger for God, I really believe there's a hunger for God today. God has people that desire to know who he is. And he asks us to go as a means to bring that good news. Beyond the 25th of December, but we bring this message every day of our lives to those who need to know it. The Christmas reality is that Christ was born to die and be a ransom for the curse of sin. Uh, We say this a lot here at church, that the coming of Christ, he came, he was purposely born to die. We sang that this morning in Christ Alone in those verses that he came, he died, but he burst forth in resurrection, right? So we know that he came to live a, a perfect life and then to die. There was a line from John Doan. He was a 17th century poet and pastor, and he gave a message on Christmas Day in 1626. And he said this, that Christ's birth and his death were but one continual act. And his Christmas Day and his Good Friday are but the evening and the morning of one and that same day. There's a connection uh, that we can never lose sight of. His incarnation and the hill of Calvary and the resurrection of Christ are so connected. That's what defines our lives. That's our identity now. Not broken, sinful slaves that have no hope but we now have an assurance and a glorified hope in a God that lives forever. See, he burst forth into this world and he accomplished what you and I never could do. We're broken, we're sinful, we're stained, we're depraved. There was no way we were going to fix what had to be fixed. But the eternal living God and King today broke in on Christmas Day as we acknowledge it and changed all that. Charles Spurgeon says that men come and go like shadows on the wall, but God reigneth eternally. We distinguish kings as they succeed each other by calling them first, second, but the king is Jehovah, the first and the last. So he's the God of incarnation and he is the God that reigns today alive and well. Let's pray. God, we just stop even at the end of this time together and give you which seems like um, minor words, but we give you true thanks for who you are today. You are the king that reigns eternal today. You are the God that chose to break into our world at the fullness of time, the perfect time, and become flesh for us. All knowing that this birth and this miraculous, glorious event was leading to something greater, which we know was the, the cross, which was the hill of Calvary, where you would bleed and die out and pay for all the sins for us that were under the law that could never fulfill the law. You were the perfect sacrifice. You lived the perfect life. You went from the manger to the cross without a blemish. We praise you today for that. That is where we put our hope and our trust. And beyond that, we just don't look at the broken body and the blood and the dismemberment of what you did, but we look to the glorious resurrection. Your word tells us that after three days, you rose from the grave. You conquered death and sin. And you're alive today, and you are reigning in majesty. God, Christmas is about us going from just this scene of miraculous, but going to the mercy and the majesty of who you are. Lord, thank you for loving us in a way that you did not leave us in a state where we were hopeless. But you broke into our world, you broke into time, and you changed all that for eternity. We sit here this morning as people redeemed, taken out of slavery, and give thanks to our King. And for those who may be sitting here this morning, and that would not be the reality, I pray, God, by your Spirit, you would flood their heart and their mind to see you. We think of those that we have loved ones that are, are not within a relationship with Christ today. God, would you open their, their minds Open their spiritual eyes to see your beauty. And would you call them to yourself and save them? We give you all the glory for who you are and what you have done. We ask this in Christ's name.